Good morning. Happy Father's Day to all the dads out there today and all the granddads and the great-granddads. We're, uh, we're glad for your influence and your love upon our lives. We're also grateful today. Uh, it was not mentioned, I don't think, uh, yet, but uh, Amy, Amy's parents, Pastor Arch and Carolyn, their home has been spared from the Colorado wildfires, so we're very grateful about that. Um, Amy recounted a story of a bee missionary uh, whose home was right in the throes of the fire and they got together and prayed that their home would be spared so that they could continue their missionary work and not have to focus on rebuilding and their home was the only home standing in the whole neighborhood. And so these Colorado wildfires have been quite devastating but uh, we're grateful that the fires um, did not come up to Arch and Carolyn's neighborhood. And, uh, well, they ca- it came awful close, but it did not come all the way, and for that we're grateful. If you have a Bible, open up to the book of Jude, second to last book in your Bible, the book of Jude. We'll be looking at verses 8 to 19 today, 8 to 19. Bennett, uh, my son, I often take him to work, uh, to school, and uh, we're driving in the car, and once we get to a certain spot in the drive, I always kind of turn around and I say, Bennett, you know, how can we, how can I pray for you today? And he was, he's always given me different prayer requests, you know, usually that um, he'll get a good uh, trade that day as he trades marbles. Uh, marbles are the big thing at his school, and so the kids are trading marbles, and he wants a really good trade. And I always try to, you know, press him. I say, Ben, okay, let's get get something a little bit more substantive. What what can we really pray for? And and he tries and to think about things, and he tries to give me some good answers. But you know, he's only he's only six, so I'll turn around sometimes. I'll say, Bennett, how about we pray that you can be a good witness to the other boys and girls. I'm sure there might be some boys and girls, Bennett, that that don't know Jesus. And maybe you can be a good witness to them. And Bennett turned to me one day and he says, Dad, all the kids at my school know Jesus. I said, really? He said, yeah, Dad, they all know Jesus. I said, how do you know that? He said, because they all say the Pledge of Allegiance. (laughs) One nation under God. And I thought to myself, wow. I, I didn't correct him. I, I, just, I, let it, I let it be for a little bit. And I just thought, wow, my son, through, through that, the subtlety of saying the Pledge of Allegiance each day, uh, thought that, that that was enough, that that, that, that was somehow the, the community that he was in, that just that saying of that mutual pledge, boy, boy everybody must be in. Of course, later on, I, I had a more a more deeper conversation with him, explaining to him that it wasn't just about saying the Pledge of Allegiance that makes us a Christian, but it is believing in Jesus Christ as our Savior. But that struck me as, um, as significant as we go through the book of Jude. Because you see, Jude is talking about a group of people within the church, not just outside of the church, within the church, that look like, in many respects... They're a part of the community. Jude is writing about these people. He calls them uh, 
uh, in verse 4, he calls them they've, that they've crept in unnoticed. They're kind of sneaky people. But he says, boy, they can really blend in if you're not watching carefully. They can say the pledge, so to speak. They can just do all the things in the church that look like and give an appearance of the fact that they're in the community. When in reality, they're nothing but false teachers. And Judah's warning his community about these people. And so as we look at the book of Jude today, I want to bring us back on one page of where we've been and then enter into verses 8 through 19. On your outline, first and foremost, what is Jude's purpose? We've written this down a couple weeks now. Jude's purpose is to guard, write that down, guard the Christian faith and to strengthen your own for the danger of departure or apostasy is real. Guard the Christian faith, he tells his community. And strengthen your own. For the danger of departure or apostasy is real. And what is apostasy? What is apostasy? Apostasy is departure. Departure from God's truth in general or from one's Christian faith in particular. What is apostasy? It is departure on your outline from God's truth in general or from one's Christian faith in particular. We've also then gone on and, and asked a very important question, one that's come upon our minds probably many times as we're reading through this book, and that is, but do apostates go to hell? Do apostates go to hell? Do those who depart go to hell? Well, our answer is this. Based on God's Word, our eternal destiny is not based on whether we apostatize or not. It's not based on whether we depart or not. Our eternal destiny is based on whether we've ever believed in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. In Acts 16.31, Paul looked at the Philippian jailer and he says, hey, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We have it right there in our uh, golden banner behind me, the yellow banner behind me. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. That's it. If you do that, you'll become a child of God. I put down there on the outline, if we have done that, then we are forever a child of God. John 5.24 says we've passed from death to life and we will not come into judgment if we've trusted Jesus as our Savior. Now, if we haven't done that, then we're not a child of God. If we haven't believed in Jesus, then we're not regenerated. We are not eternally saved. And we are on a course for hell. But we're on a course for hell because of our unbelief. Not because of apostasy. People go to heaven or hell based on what they believe about Jesus. You say, well, hey, why don't I just believe? And if you tell me that apostasy later on, if departure later on, maybe it's, if, if, if you're telling me, Pastor Neil, that, that once I've believed, I can depart, I can apostatize, I can walk away, I can leave and still be secure, then what's the big deal about apostasy? on your outline then what's the big deal this is the big deal Jude makes clear that all apostates receive 
judgment. Not eternal hell and uh, heaven versus hell judgment. I'm talking this worldly, earthly, temporal judgment. And also, potentially, the loss of eternal rewards in the kingdom of God for those who are Christians. Jude makes clear that all those who depart receive judgment, and anyone who departs from God's truth can expect to hear from God. That's the story of Romans 1. In Romans 1, it was unbelievers who had departed from God. They had left God. They had walked away from God, and God gave them up, Romans says. Paul says in Romans 1. He gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up to what their wanton hearts desired, and it resulted in Horrible debauchery. That was unbelievers in Romans 1. But you know what? Believers can apostatize too. Believers can depart from the faith too. And a good example of that we looked last week is verse 5 of Jude, in which Jude talks about the Exodus generation who walked away from God. They, they apostatized. They departed from the faith. Look at verse 5 for just a minute from last week. He says, and I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward he destroyed those who did not believe. We learned last week what that word destroyed meant. We might think it means an issue of heaven or hell. But really, apolumai in Greek has the connotation of physical temporal punishment, physical temporal deterioration, physical temporal death. And that that is what it most often means in the New Testament. Not eternal death. Read 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. And you'll see Paul talk about that same Exodus generation that apostatized, that departed from the faith. And he says quite clearly that that generation drank from the same spiritual rock, which was Christ. Paul gave a huge statement of their faith in Christ as a community, as a generation, a generation that later apostatized and walked away from God. And so what happened to that generation, Jude 5? They were destroyed. That is to say, they suffered physical death in the wilderness and they did not enter the promised land. If you have questions about some of these things that we're talking about, I really encourage you to go over these past two weeks of sermons. They're online, um, particularly, uh, well, really both messages that cover verses 1 through 7, because these are difficult issues to wade through. Sometimes we have this this knee-jerk reaction that if we apostatize, we go to hell. That's not true. Heaven or hell is a matter of faith. Anyone can depart. But heaven or hell is a matter of faith. And the Bible says that once we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, no one will be able to snatch us from the Father's hand. We might apostatize. We might depart. And that departure, Jude says, will incur judgment. We'll hear from God about it. But we will still be a child of God. We might experience physical grief, trial, tribulation. We might experience eternal loss of rewards and sorrow as 1 John speaks of at Jesus' coming. 
But we will always be a child of God once we've trusted Him by faith. So now let's go on further and deeper into this book of Jude, this letter of Jude, to his community that he's worried about. He's worried that they are going to assume that everyone in their community is of the community, is of the faith. And Jude knows that there are some crafty men within this community that he calls in verse 8, are like dreamers. Take a look at verse 8. In fact, would you please stand with me as we read verses 8 to 19 of Jude chapter 1. Verses 8 to 19, Jude 1. Jude writes, Likewise, also, these dreamers, these false teachers he's speaking of, they defile the flesh. They reject authority. They speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but instead said, The Lord rebuke you. But these, these dreamers, they speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them. For they've gone in the way of Cain, They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. They've perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are spots in your love feasts. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds. They are late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They are raging waves of the sea, Foaming up their own shame, they are wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly about, uh, among them of all their ungodly deeds about which, about which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. These, these dreamers, these are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. But you, beloved, but you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how they told you that there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. These are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. You may be seated. Jude likes uh, three. (laughs) He likes putting things in threes. In verse 1, we're called, sanctified, preserved. In verse 2, he speaks of peace, mercy, and love. In verse 5, 6, and 7, he gives one, two, three examples from the Old Testament. In verse 8, he speaks of these false teachers in a threefold description. In verse 11, he also gives three examples from the Old Testament about who these false teachers are like. Jude likes the number three. And it's a a style that he'll use often in this letter. 
But take a look again at verse 8 in particular. He says, Likewise, these dreamers, they defile the flesh, they reject authority, and they speak evil of dignitaries. The word dreamers there uh, brings to attention what we saw in our study in Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul spoke of people in the community uh, at, at Colossae who were claiming to have visions. They were claiming to have experiences with God. And Paul was rightly saying that, that their visions, that their dreams were not dreams of the Lord, but instead were dreams that they made up for their own advantage. Likewise, Jude calls these false teachers, these apostates in the community, he calls them dreamers. He says, watch out for those who speak in lavish visions and dreams all of the time. Paul criticizes them for not having seen the visions that they claim in Colossians. Jude does the same here. And he says that they defile the flesh. That is to say, sexual defilement. We just read about that in verse 7. We looked at that last week. Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7 of Jude. Jude's continuing this theme of, of sexual immorality. They, they defile the flesh. They are people who don't consider their bodies as a temple of the Holy Spirit, but who use their bodies in perverse and immoral ways. He says, secondly, they reject authority. What authority? Well, the authority of God. It says in verse 4 that they deny the Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. They also reject the authority of the apostles, whom Jude mentions later on in this chapter. And these false teachers, thirdly, they speak evil of dignitaries. This is likely a reference to those who are in authority in the church. Though it can also speak of perhaps uh, uh, political leaders as well in the community. But most likely Jude's speaking about the church. Those in dignified positions of authority in the church. And it is this last element that Jude really begins to zero in on as he continues in verses 9 and 10. Jude's point in these next verses, 9 and 10, is that not even the mightiest angel of God would speak like these false teachers speak. Not even the mightiest angel of God would speak evil of dignitaries as these false teachers do. Take a look at verse 9. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, he dared not bring against the devil a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these dreamers, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. Jude says, look, these men, these false teachers, they take every opportunity they can to deride, to mock, and to reject those in places of authority in the church. But, they're, but the incessant aura of superiority over others that they have 
That that aura, that superiority that these false teachers have, that, that, that they're better than all of these authorities in the church, that kind of tone is not even the, tone, the kind of tone that the mightiest angel of God takes as he speaks to the devil. Jude gives the example of Michael, the archangel. And he says, in contending with the devil, when they were disputing about the body of Moses, that is to say perhaps the, the, the burial of Moses or, or where he was buried, Michael dared not bring against the devil a reviling accusation, but instead said, the Lord rebuke you. The false teachers of, of Jude, they were speaking loudly and proudly against church leaders. Jude says, the mightiest angel, Michael, did not even presume to admonish Satan on his own authority. But instead, Michael would humble himself and appeal to God in the handling of Satan. But these false teachers, proudly and loudly, with great self-confidence, far more confidence than Michael the archangel, they would speak against authorities in the church. Of course, Michael, as archangel of God, was far more powerful than these mere men. But even he would not speak to the devil like this. So, in effect, what Jude is telling us in verses 10 and 11 is that these men speak out of turn. Verse 10, these, these speak evil of whatever they do not know. He says they speak out of turn. They speak and they ought not to. They speak against such authorities and they ought not to. They speak out of turn. They consider themselves to be wise, but they are fools. And with what little knowledge, with what little knowledge they do have in this life, Jude says they use that knowledge for corrupt purposes. Continuing verse 10, but these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they do know, whatever they know naturally, like animals, like brute beasts, in these things they corrupt themselves. They take whatever small amount of knowledge they do have, and they use it for corrupt ends. Now what about this story though in verse 9 about Michael and the devil disputing about the body of Moses? Um, can someone turn in their Bible and, and read to us the story of Michael and the devil disputing about the body of Moses? Please go ahead and turn there. Scott, I'd like you to turn there and, and read it for us. Read us the story of Michael and the devil disputing about the body of Moses. You have a microphone, I know. Would you like to read that story? You can't find it? Can anyone find it? That's strange. We see here in verse 9 a story that Jude is citing. Michael, the archangel, and the devil in an argument about the body of Moses. And yet, how interesting. Go all the way from Genesis to Revelation. You will not find that story elsewhere in all of your scriptures. Where in the world did Jude get such a story? On the back of your outline, I've given you some, some notes uh, for today. And under that first subtitle uh, title there, These Dreamers Are More Confident Than the Mightiest Angel, I've written down there the name of a book. The Assumption of Moses, or also known as the Testament of Moses, 
And I call it there a Jewish apocryphal pseudepigraphical work. See if I can say that word ten times. We don't know for sure, but many scholars believe that Jude was quoting from an obscure Jewish religious text called the Assumption of Moses or the Testament of Moses. And many early church fathers confirm this to be the case. The Assumption of Moses is a single manuscript, by the way, a single manuscript uh, from the 6th century. It's incomplete. It's written in Latin. And it was discovered in an ancient library in Milan, Italy. It was discovered in the mid-1800s, first published, uh, published again, I should say, in 1861. If you Google it, you can read it. Um, it's an interesting read. Uh, there's only, again, excerpts of it because some of the manuscript was damaged. This book, The Assumption of Moses, is what is known as Jewish, apocryphal, pseudepigraphical work. That's a mouthful. Let's break that down. Let's start with the last word. Pseudepigraphical. What does that mean? Pseudepigraphical means a work whose claimed authorship is unfounded. I'll say that again. A work whose claimed authorship is unfounded. This book purports to be the writings of Moses, the assumption of Moses, as it says in the title. But it's not true. It's not written by Moses. And there is abundant evidence to make that very clear just based on the manuscript itself. Um, So scholars look upon this writing and they say this is pseudepigraphical. This is a book that is claimed to be written by a certain author, but that that claim is unfounded. Secondly, it's apocryphal. That is to say, it has doubtful authenticity. Having doubtful authenticity. The word doubtful there on your outline. Again, they're, they're very much uh, synonymous in some respects. So, so it's, it's, a, it's a book that's pseudepigraphical. It's claimed to be written by Moses, but it is not written by Moses. And it's also apocryphal. It has doubtful authenticity. We don't exactly know who wrote it. We don't exactly know where they came from. Uh, we have some good, you know, reasonable guesses, but really uh, our ability to know is very limited. I want to add this. The assumption of Moses is apocryphal, but it is not a part, it is not a part of the apocrypha on your outline. The word apocryphal is different from the apocrypha, which are about seven to 15 books, depending on your tradition, uh, that are accorded various levels of canonicity and authority as the other books of the Old and New Testaments. And I've given you a short link there that you can read about. You can actually go there and read about the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha is, again, seven to 15 books, depending on tradition. The Roman Catholic Church would add seven books along with um, some additions to existing books in the Old Testament. Uh, The Greek Orthodox Church, I believe, adds 13 books to their apocryphal writings. The Protestant uh, King James uh, apocryphal literature that is found in some of the old King James versions, there were about 15 books that that, uh, some, very few, very few, but some Protestants would recognize back in the uh, days of the Reformation. The Apocrypha is additional writings that were recognized uh, throughout church history as having some measure of value to the study 
of doctrine and theology, to the study of uh, the Jewish religion, and uh, later also of Christianity, but that they did not, for us as evangelical Protestant Christians, they never reached that level of authority and inspiration and canonicity with which we recognize these 66 books. The process of canonicity is a huge topic and it would require a multiple series message if we were to delve into the details of of why something is inspired and canonized and why other things are not. Suffice to say that the Apocrypha is not recognized in our Bible. It is recognized in the Roman Catholic and some of the Greek Orthodox and very few other Protestant traditions. Um, But this assumption of Moses, this particular book, It was apocryphal, but it was not in the apocrypha, which means that it not only, uh, it it had a very, very low measure of credibility to it and of authority to it. But we might ask the question on your outline, if Jude quoted this book, Neil, doesn't that mean that the assumption of Moses should be considered as scripture? I mean, look, he quoted it. He, He wrote a story that that most scholars believe and early church fathers believe derived from this ancient manuscript, The Assumption of Moses. So shouldn't The Assumption of Moses be in our Bible too? The answer simply is no. There are dozens, no, there are hundreds, hundreds of apocryphal books. Teachers, philosophers, There are hundreds of instances in which, even in the scriptures, there are hundreds of instances in which books, teachers, and philosophers are cited, cited in the pages of, of the Bible, these 66 books, that sometimes are referencing it approvingly, the quote, they reference it in 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 an approving way, other times they reference it in a disapproving way. You know, Paul, in his, uh, in his, survey of what was going on in Greece he, he noticed they had an inscription upon a tomb and he quoted that inscription he says look you're you're writing here to the unknown God well let me tell you about him see Paul quoted in Acts 18 what was inscribed upon that tomb but that didn't mean that Paul was according that quote with a great measure of merit and that it should be that all of the Greek philosophy that went into developing that quotation should be embraced as wholly authoritative in Scripture. Paul was simply using the quote to accomplish his purpose. He was using the quote to accomplish his argument. He was using the quote to carry out his line of thinking. And that's what Jude's doing here. There are dozens and dozens of ancient books, teachers, and philosophers that the writers of Scripture quote, sometimes approvingly, sometimes disapprovingly, But never are such quotations a wholesale endorsement of the work itself. And so we deal with these quotations one by one, as they are, according to them, the same level of trust that the biblical writer gives it. We don't need to add the assumption of Moses to the list of inspired and inerrant writings of Scripture. All we need do is recognize that in verse 9, Jude used that quote, that that reference, that story 
to carry out his argument. An argument that said to the false teachers, boy, you better watch it because not even Michael the archangel talks like you do. He continues in verse 11, so woe, woe to you, woe to them. For they have gone, verse 11, they have gone, these false teachers, in the way of Cain. They've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and they've perished in the rebellion of Korah. Woe to them. An imprecation of judgment, he says, woe, woe to you, watch out, you're going to hear from God if you keep talking like that. And he gives three examples. He says, if you continue on this course, you, you will have gone in the way of Cain. Read Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Cain withheld his best from God, while his brother Abel gave his best to God. Thus Cain grew envious and murdered his brother. And Genesis 4.11 says that God cursed Cain for the remainder of his earthly life, causing him to live a life of suffering, of painstaking work that yielded little fruit from the ground. God, Cain apostatized and God responded. And Jude's telling these false teachers, boy, if you continue to talk like this, if you continue to act like this, you will hear from God, just as Cain did. What about Balaam? Read Numbers 22 and onward about the story of Balaam, an evil Moabite soothsayer and prophet who vainly tried to curse the Jews as they were entering the promised land, as they were walking through the Moabite territory on their way to the promised land. Balaam, this, this wicked prophet, Known for his greed, he, he, he would take money in return for favorable prophecy. That's who Balaam was. And in Numbers 31, verse 16, it indicates that he gave wicked, evil counsel to the Israelites. And Balaam will later die at their hands. So Jude says to the false teachers, he says, you keep talking like this, you keep acting like this, you're going to go in the way of Cain. God's going to judge you. You're going to go in the way of Balaam. Your greed is going to get the best of you. And finally, he mentions Korah. Perished in the rebellion of Korah. Read number 16. You'll find the story of Korah and his allies. Korah was, he, he was dissatisfied with what God, the responsibility that God had given to him. He was a man of the Jews. He, was, uh, he had uh, quite a few allies with him. And he was disappointed in the, the job that God gave him as they walked through the wilderness, as they, as they uh, tabernacled with God on their way to the promised land. Korah was bummed out that he didn't have a better job to do. And he looked at Moses as the, as the priest of the people, so to speak, Moses and Aaron as, as the highest representatives of the people, and he said, I want that job. Moses, Aaron, I want what you have let me and let my men get that job. He was hungry for power. He was hungry for authority. And God judged Korah and all the men with him. The earth opened up and swallowed Korah and his men in Numbers chapter 16. Cain, Balaam, Korah. Jude says again and again, and again, if you apostatize, if you depart, you will hear from God.
you will hear from God. It's interesting, William Barclay, a, a scholar who wrote on Jude, points out that Cain, Balaam, and Korah were three figures that were highly regarded by the Gnostics after the time of Christ. Remember we learned that, that these false teachers were most likely Gnostics. That is to say they were, they were men who denied uh, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, who denied the incarnation for that matter. And the Gnostics, certain subsets of the Gnostics, according to William Barclay, they really esteemed these three men in particular, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. In fact, one such group of the Gnostics after the time of Christ called the Orphites considered Cain, Balaam, and Korah to be three of the greatest heroes of the Old Testament. And so perhaps Jude was preempting a rising unorthodox teaching that was beginning to infiltrate the church, a kind of doctrine that would turn villains into heroes. And Jude says, what is this talk of taking men like Cain and Balaam and Korah and turning them into heroes? He says, I want none of this. Let me tell you who these men really were. Let me tell you what really happened to these men. They weren't heroes of the faith. They were villains of the faith. They were apostates. They were men who departed from the truth of God and they heard from God. And he says, you will too if you depart. Boy, that infiltration had already begun though. These false teachers had crept into Jude's community. And in fact, Jude says that these false teachers so infiltrated, so enmeshed in the community were they that they were even participating in the Lord's Supper, in the, in the fellowship meals of the church. Take a look at verse 12. He says, these dreamers, they are spots in your love feasts. He's talking to the church here. He says, they're, they're spots in your love feasts, O church. While they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves, they are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, laid autumn trees without fruit, twice dead and pulled up by the roots, their raging ways of the sea, foaming up their own shame, their wandering stars, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. He says they are spots on your love feast. That is to say, the, the meals with which you gather together in your community. These people, these, these false teachers, boy, they are blemishes on that gathering. The word spots there can also mean something different. It's the word spilates in Greek. And on your outline, uh, I quote Brad Doskosil. He says, spots or spilates in Greek also refer to hidden reefs just below the surface of the water. A hidden source of danger to the church, possibly leading some believers to spiritual shipwreck. He says they're like hidden reefs below the surface. And you, don't, you do not know it, but as you're, as you're coming in over the waves, you're going to get hit on that reef that you cannot see. While they eat, while they feast, they do so without fear, he says in verse 12. They serve only themselves. Remember how Paul spoke about the end of 1 Corinthians 11? Paul said, uh, boy, be careful how you take the Lord's Supper. 
he warned the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, boy, take the Lord's Supper judiciously and carefully. Not hastily or haphazardly. I think that Jude now is seeing the effects years later after Corinth of what happens when a church lets that love feast, lets that Lord's Supper, lets those fellowship meals just be overrun by those in the community who abuse it. By those in the community who take the Lord's Supper in haste. Not being mindful of the Lord's body. What He did for us. He says they're clouds without water. They promised refreshment. They promised refreshing rain, but they are carried about by the winds. They're late autumn trees. They were supposed to grow fruit, but boy, that fruit was dried up, twice dead, pulled up by the roots. They're raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. You know, every time the waves come, the waves bring back the debris. We always see the signs, you know, it drains to the ocean, so do not litter, right? You know, all that, all that debris goes out to the ocean and the waves bring it back and crash it back down on the beach. Jude says, they're bringing back their own shame upon the waves. They're wandering stars. In that day, the captains of ships needed, needed particular uh, views of the sky to know their navigation. And the stars that would wander on them the, star, the shooting stars, so to speak, and the stars that were not set in place, like the planets, would lead them astray at times. He says, these men, they're wandering stars. They take you off course. For whom is reserved, these men? The blackness of darkness forever. Their destiny will be hell, Jude says. Not because they're apostates. That's not why but because they never believed in the Son of God to begin with. As Jude will later say in verse 19, they never had the Spirit. See that at the end of verse 19? Not having the Spirit. These men never had Him. They were never regenerate. They never expressed faith in Christ. And because they were never born again, because they were never regenerated, and on account of that unbelief, and, of course, with also a view to the excessive nature of their apostasy, of their departure from God, Jude says they will experience the blackness of darkness forever. Look at verse 14. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Jude says, And Enoch prophesied about these men. You want to turn to the book of Enoch, Scott, and read for us the story in which Enoch prophesied of this very thing? I like to point you out, Scott. You, you cannot find it. Here we go again. Wait, wait, we were just in verse 9. Michael and the devil and the dispute about the body of Moses. Where is that story in your Bible? Nowhere. It's a, a, of a different pseudepigraphical, apocryphal book that is used 
for the purpose of Jude's argument. Here we are again. Verse 14. We're talking about Enoch and his prophecy. Scroll through Genesis all the way to Revelation and you will not find one word of Enoch having prophesied about this matter. And so, we look again at where Jude must have received this citation. And we find a book known as the Book of Enoch, also known as First Enoch. It is like the assumption of Moses in that it too is an ancient Jewish apocryphal pseudepigraphical work, this time ascribed to Enoch, the great-grandfather of Noah. But of course, that, that authorship is, is unfounded, pseudepigraphical. It is, uh, interestingly enough, it was found in the regions of Ethiopia and Eritrea, some of these manuscripts of the, of the book of Enoch. And so a lot of the Christians in Eritrea and Ethiopia and different parts of, of uh, northeastern Africa have high regard for this book. So it is like the Assumption of Moses in that it is apocryphal, pseudepigraphical, but it is very much unlike the Assumption of Moses because we actually have a full copy of First Enoch. And we actually have the exact quotation from which Jude writes what he does in verses 14 and 15. On your outline, I've listed it for you. The book of Enoch, First Enoch, this is as translated by R.H. Charles, uh, an early 20th century translation of First Enoch 1.9. This is how it reads, And behold, he cometh with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all and to destroy all the ungodly and to convict all flesh of all the works of their ungodliness which they have ungodly committed and of all the hard things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Quite a close quotation, is it not? That, what you see there on your outline, is First Enoch 1.9, as translated by R.H. Charles. Jude had a copy of First Enoch. And as he continued his argument about these apostates, about these false teachers, and the judgment that was coming, he quotes this book of Enoch. He had it handy with him. It was recognized by quite a few in his Jewish community as having a measure of authority, a measure of relevance, so much so that Jude decided to quote it. Now does that mean that First Enoch should be considered Scripture? Once again, that's not necessary at all at this point. The point is that Jude is using a commonly known religious text in his day to drive home a point that judgment is coming. It would be like this. It would be like if I were to take a book by Billy Graham or a book by C.S. Lewis, um, men well recognized in the Christian community, well recognized as having a good measure of authority as having a good measure of, of, of orthodox teaching and of good values who are, who are closely aligned with the Scriptures. And it would be like if I were to take that book by Billy Graham or by C.S. Lewis and read a quotation from it, it, would I then ascribe inspiration 
and canonicity to the entirety of that book? Of course not. Would I read that quotation and would I say, and because Billy Graham has rightfully uh, quoted something, has rightfully written something that is perfectly in accord with Scripture, therefore the entirety of this book is inspired and canonized and to be read as the 66 other books of the Bible? Of course not. I would simply be quoting from Billy Graham or quoting from C.S. Lewis to prove a point, to demonstrate my point that they were in accord with Scripture and that they had something that helped develop what Scripture was trying to communicate. So it is with Jude. He quotes a story from the Assumption of Moses. He quotes directly from the book of First Enoch. He does not do so that you and I would look at it and go, oh, maybe we should add that to our Bible. No. Instead, he quotes it to prove his point to carry out the extent of his argument. And as Paul told the Thessalonians, Paul said this, he said, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Test all things, hold fast to what is good. You know, when there's a good quote in a Christian book, celebrate it. When you read something that accords with Scripture, wonderful, share it with others. It doesn't mean that we're going to be adding it to our Bibles, but it means that it it carries out the beauty and the truth with which God has put His truth in Scripture. And there are many things in culture, works, uh, written works, works of art, all throughout culture that showcase and highlight and point us to the truth of God's Word and the story of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And anything that does that is to be celebrated. Anything that does that, that that draws our attention back to the Lord God and to His Son Jesus Christ and to the great salvation that we have in Him, if anything does that, it is to be celebrated and honored because God uses people, men and women, works of art, works of books and articles and poems and all sorts of things. He uses the handiwork of our hands sometimes to point us to God. I remember looking at the Statue of David in Florence, Italy. I was privileged to, to travel there a number of years ago. And as I stood and looked at the great Statue of David hand-carved by Michelangelo. I was in awe. I was in absolute awe of the gifts of God that could be given to a man hundreds of years ago that God could so gift certain men and women to do phenomenal things in His name. And for me, looking upon that great statue... It hearkened upon my memory. Um, It hearkened upon my thought process. Just a moment of worship with my God. That's a good thing. Anything in culture that points us back to the Lord God is a good thing. This section of Enoch did just that for Jude. And so he quoted it. He said, Enoch prophesied of these men and he told us that these men would come, 
verse 14, and that they would come, but that God would respond, that the Lord would also come with ten thousands of His saints, and the Lord would execute judgment on all to convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they've committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Take note, He says to His community. God will respond to them. It is shown in Scripture that He will respond to them. It is shown in the Old Testament that He will respond to them. It is shown in the New Testament that He will respond to them. The words of Jesus tell us He'll respond to them. The words of Jude tell us God will respond to apostates. The book of Enoch remind us that God will respond to those who depart. And so many other instances throughout culture tell us that. Jude says, mark it well. It will happen. And don't forget, Jude says, I told you these men were coming. Look at verse 16. We close with 16 to 19. These are grumblers. They're complainers. They're walking according to their own lusts. They mouth great swelling words. They flatter people to gain advantage. But you, you beloved, remember the words. Remember the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you that there would be these mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lusts. They are sensual persons who cause divisions, not having the Spirit. Notice again verse 17 and 18. He says, The apostles have told you over and over and over again that such false teachers would be coming. You say, well, Neil... And I heard, I actually heard this exact thing. I've heard it multiple times from some of you uh, in these last couple weeks. I say, Neil, this is a strange book because I just don't see it. I don't see how uh, the church allows such false teachers, such defilers, such apostates to infiltrate in. I, I don't see it, Neil. I, I look at our church. I look at Coast Bible Church and, and I just don't see how could that happen? Come on, Neil. The, Jude must have been talking about something that is that was for then but, but it's just not for now because I don't see that happening today. I don't see false teachers infiltrating the church today like maybe they were in, in Jude's day. Some of you have wondered about that. You know, my response is, my response is, is Jude's response. It starts very small. It starts very small. In verse 16, he calls them grumblers. They're grumblers. They start to grumble. Then they start to complain. They're grumblers. They're complainers. They start to speak in ways that would pit people against one another. Verse 19, he says, they cause divisions. Little tiny divisions. They, they start separating these people over here and these people over here. And they, they celebrate that division. They're grumblers. They're complainers. They're dividers. And then it starts getting a little bit more noticeable. 
Then they start walking according to their own lusts. That is to say, they start walking a little bit more loud and proud about it. Not all, not in the past it was done secretly, it was done subtly, but now they're starting to, 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 to prop themselves up a little bit and to walk boldly in their own lusts, in their own desires. And they start to mouth great swelling words. They start to become people of great influence in their own eyes at least and in the eyes of some in the community. They start to flatter people to gain advantage. He says in verse 19, they're sensual people. The word sensual would be better said that they are unspiritual. They're earthly minded. They're materially minded unspiritual, earthly-minded, material-minded friends on your outline, it starts small. Apostasy begins with subtlety. Write that down. Apostasy begins with subtlety. When you wonder, when you read Jude and you wonder, come on, this can't happen to Coast Bible Church. Don't kid yourself. Don't fool yourself. Because apostasy begins slowly. Little pivots, little turns, a couple degrees here, a couple degrees there, and all of a sudden, you've turned the whole body around, and you're going in a different course. Little pivots, little changes. Ah, the Word of God, ah, you know, it's, it's, it's truthful, but it might not be inerrant. Little pivots. Ah, you know, Jesus Christ, it, yeah, He's... He is the way to salvation, but he, he, he might not be the only way. Little pivots. Little pivots. And all of a sudden, you have an entire church, an entire organization, who's walked away from God. I think of the Ivy League schools. Oh my. You know, every single one, Harvard, Princeton, I could go on and on and list all of those schools Columbia, many others. What was that, Glenn? USC. USC. Well, it's true. It's true about USC. Go back and research the foundations of these schools. Go back and look at the foundation of Harvard. Who began it? You will find a group of men and women who were unbelievably committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And they began that school with the premise and the goal that they would raise up great Christian men and women of the academy. Go to Harvard Divinity School today. You'll be lucky to find a professor who believes that the Bible is inerrant. Little pivots, friends. Apostasy starts small. Apostasy begins with subtlety. And that is why these little things matter. That is why these little tiny things that in the eyes of culture are so small, so little, homosexual marriage. Come on, Neil, homosexual marriage? Can't we just all get along? We spoke about that last week. I won't rehash it. But I will say this. I... Uh, it's rare, it's rare for me, personally, to go back and to listen to my own message. <laughs> Usually I'm kind of, ah, whew, 
I got, I got through it. I don't want to rehash it because it just took everything in me to give it. I went back and I listened to, to my own message last week. And the reason I did is because I wanted to hear again the last 20 minutes of my message. And the reason I wanted to hear the last 20 minutes of my message is because never before in my entire time standing here have I felt more inspired of the Holy Spirit to say what I said. And I wanted to hear again what it felt like to speak in a way that would say unequivocally, we will not pivot. We will not move. Some might call these things small. I say they are watershed moments in our history that will determine who apostatizes and who stays the course. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, the Lord, you know, you know how subtle false teaching can be. You've seen it, Lord, time and again as you watched as wicked and crafty men entered into communities that were once led by your Spirit and that these crafty men came in with subtle agenda, subtle pivots that took the people of God away from the truth. It happened to the Exodus generation. It happened to the angels of Genesis 6. It happened to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It happened to Cain. It happened to Balaam. It happened to Korah. And it can happen to us. So God, we're vigilant. We declare by your Spirit. We ask for by your Spirit to give us vigilance. We might not say that this is a small thing. That any departure, any departure from what your word says is good and true and beautiful is apostasy. So Lord, help us not to depart for we do not wish to incur judgment. Lord, guide us in your truth. Let us be men and women, not just of truth too, Lord, but of grace, of grace and truth. Let us stay the course, but let us stay it in a way that would speak words of love and mercy and grace to the world around us, drawing them and all to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name is the only way to salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.